Amen. We'll take just a moment before we come to preaching of God's word to <clears throat> uh, to not acknowledge and mention uh, one of our families. Uh, many of you know the Ericsons, and uh, most of you may know that they are moving to Atlanta. And uh, this is their last Sunday with them, and I don't want to embarrass them. I'm not going to make you come up front. Um, but I wanted you to know so that you could give them a hug, and I wanted you to pray with me as we send them. Pray. Father in heaven, we, we do thank you for the Erickson family and the chance that we have had to uh, join together in friendship and in partnership and to walk together for a time. And we do pray for them, Father, as they are called by you to go to another place, and we ask that, Father, you would go before them prepare the way in every way that you would provide for them a new home, a new home church, a new family, a new place to put down roots and to grow and to thrive. And our great prayer for them, Father, is that you would bless them richly as they go. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Talking about unity this morning in the body of Christ, we are in John chapter 17, running toward the end of Jesus' prayer here as he, on his last night on, uh, <clears throat> on earth, uh, last night before his betrayal and his execution on the cross, Jesus prays for his church. He prays for his people. And we've seen him pray for a number of different things in the course of all this. And as he reaches toward the end, the end of his prayer, he prays what I think is at the center of his heart for his people, uh, an important prayer for unity, for oneness. We're in John chapter 17. I'm going to read just verses 20 to 23. Hear the word of God. Jesus prays and he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given to me, I have given it to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved me, even as you've loved me. You have loved them even as you have loved me. Pray with me once again. Father in heaven, we come to your word, we come to this prayer, and we, we long to hear Jesus pray this over us. We long to hear you say this over us and, and desire this for us and speak it into existence in our presence, in our midst. Come, Holy Spirit, create this oneness. We ask it in Jesus' name. You know, I'm not sure how it happened. I really don't. But as a new Christian, as a young man, I had a pretty poor, low view of the church. I didn't grow up in the church, so I didn't get it there. I didn't, I didn't grow up going to church, so it, it didn't happen in, in that way. I didn't come to Christ until I was 18, and I gave my life to Christ just before I went to school and went off to college and spent years in college ministry. But by the age of 22, when I was graduating college, I had two very strong convictions. Number one, that I was called to the ministry, one way or another, and that's what I've done ever since. 
that I was called to the ministry, and the second thing I was absolutely convinced of, that it would be anywhere but the church. I kid you not. I was, my wife will tell you, and we had these discussions over and over again, even as we got married and what God was calling me to. I said, you know, you need, if, if you're going to marry me, you need to be open to going to the mission field because I think that might be where God is calling me. You know, we had that discussion, and she married me anyway. And, but one thing I had told her I would never do was work in the church. And if you ask me why at that time, as this 22-year-old young man, why do you have this, which was asked to me all the time because I was very vocal about my convictions. I would have said this. This is almost a quote from me. The church is a glass house, and people throw rocks. I don't even know where I got that expression, and I don't know why I applied it to the church. But it was my conviction at that time, and I lived in that conviction for a decade. Even when I went to seminary, I went to seminary to do something else. God has a way of overcoming our self-centeredness and our self-centered fears and of teaching us his ways and his word. And in seminary, two things happened. One, I got a good dose of theology. And it was there that I came to understand that the church is God's thing. So it became my thing. And I had some brothers who, faithful are the wounds of a friend, who spoke truth to me when I needed to hear it. And it changed me. Changed my understanding. The church is God's idea. The church is God's thing. And so I'm not free to have those kind of opinions about it. Not if I'm going to honor him. Not if I'm going to honor Christ. I became convinced that faithfulness to Christ meant faithfulness to his church. And so the rest is history. But we need a biblical understanding of the church. And I think part of it is that we make some mistakes in thinking about it. Because we expect in some ways the church on earth to be the church as it is in heaven. And we're not there yet. And so we bring expectations to the church and what it ought to be and what people ought to be. And the reality is when we get into any church, we discover people. Fallen, sinful, broken people. You know, it's always been like this. You know, part of me in, in, in even coming to grips with the churches I was experiencing as a young Christian and the churches as it is in the scripture. And you read Paul's letters. Um, if you sit down and read First and Second Corinthians in one sitting. And by the way, we're going to do this summer, my Sunday, my Wednesday night reading group, we're going to read the New Testament in eight weeks. So I encourage you to think, start thinking about it. I'm going to have you. But if, if you sit and do that, what you'll do is probably read First and Second Corinthians in one sitting. If you read Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, it was a mess. Even in Paul's day, the church Paul planted, the church Paul preached to, the church Paul was the apostle of God with with the word of God inspiring in him to write it to them and to preach it and speak it to them. You know, this guy in the unique place in history and even the churches he planted were a mess. If you read through it, I mean, just a few of the issues that were going on. There was, there was a group in the church that attack, was attacking his ministry, attacking his qualification for ministry, for, for his being an apostle at all. Right? Paul the apostle was under attack for his ministry and his qualifications for it. And then in, in the same church, there were factions, some following Paul, who loved his ministry, some following Apollos and causing division and strife within the church. And he tells them, don't follow either one of us, follow Jesus. There was profound sin in the life of the church. We learned some about church discipline because Paul writes to the church in Corinth to address 
sexual sin in ways that I'm not even going to mention what was going on. You, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, no, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Lord's Supper, when he describes in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 what's going on in the Lord's Supper, you'd be appalled. Appalled at the way these guys were celebrating communion. Not to mention the church service, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, is all about the use of gifts and, and trying to bring order out of chaos in the way they were doing church. The way they were doing communion and doing church was a mess. And it was all driven by a spiritual arrogance. Paul, when he writes to them, we, remember, we talked about this not long ago, we talked about them being fleshly and, and in the flesh and not spiritual. Yet, you know, that, that there was maturing and growth that needed to happen in the life of the church. And so here Paul, the very church he planted, and struggles to help this church mature and to fulfill this prayer of Jesus. You know, I think of Paul's letter to Philippi. Can you imagine if I wrote a letter to the church that I wanted read up front, and I named you in it because you were giving trouble? Right? Paul writes to Philippi, uh, to the church in Philippi. It's there in your bulletin, 4, 2, and 3. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Like, cut it out. Stop, stop arguing. Start fighting. Whatever you're issue is, I plead with you before the church and in the Lord Jesus Christ, please, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. You know, they've, they've labored with me in the gospel. Bring peace to the church. You think of the Jesus' seven letters to the churches in Revelation, right? You read those letters. You ever, you ever read them and just think, what is wrong with these people? How did the gospel ever get preached? How did the church ever grow? How did ministry ever get going? With all the stuff that goes on in God's church. And here's the thing. The church is a lot like you and me. Right? We're saved and full of potential. But we're still a mess. Right? We're still broken. We're still struggling. We're still striving. There is, there is a holiness that he declares over us in Christ when he saves us. And yet, and yet it's something that we're striving after every day. And yet it's something that we fail at every day. And so we're repenting, hopefully. That we have a, a lifestyle of repentance. That as we stumble and struggle along. And here's the thing. The church is made up of a bunch of us. And so we stumble along, and there's that same pattern. It's, we're saved, and we're full of potential, but there is this dynamic where we are still pressing toward what God, the high calling that we have in Jesus. And sometimes we succeed in beautiful and powerful ways by the grace of God, and sometimes we fail miserably. There's this old saying that says, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it. Because you'll ruin it. Right? Don't join it because you'll ruin it. The church is full of messy people. It's a messy business. But it's God's church. It is his bride. It's what he is doing. He establishes it. And he says, for whatever reason, it's through the foolishness of what is preached, and it's through the foolishness of a gathered, broken people seeking to follow him, that he does what he does. I read a passage like this, and my heart is filled with longing for Jesus' church. 
right, for Jesus, for King Jesus' people to be the answer to this prayer. I long to be a part of the answer to this prayer myself, that I would be a part of the solution and not part of the problem, right, that I would be pursuing by the grace and the power of his spirit that oneness that he speaks of here, right? He's praying for his whole church. In verse 20, it's clear he's been praying over the 12 and saying some very specific things. In verse 20, he says, I'm not asking only for these guys, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is you and me. That is the church of Jesus Christ around the globe now that is established on on the the preaching of the word as it has come to us through the apostles. So Jesus is praying for us. This is specifically, my friends, and I want you to hear Jesus praying for you this morning, praying for us this morning. As his church and as his people, he's saying, I pray, what does he pray? That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us. looks past the apostles and he prays for Hickson Presbyterian Church and he prays for our oneness he prays for our unity he prays for our harmony he prays that we would be in him and in the father in such a way that it changes the way we do church the way that we are a people together and live together he prays for a two-sided unity and I, I as I think about it, 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 it's really interesting. This, this one side that he prays for is this profound spiritual unity that, that is up here in the theological atmosphere, right? That you may be one as, as the Father and the Son are one, and as they co-inhere together as the Father's in the Son and the Son is in the Father, and he prays for this, that we would be one like that. There's this spiritual, rich, intangible unity. We read, I think some of it is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It's in your bulletin, second point. Paul says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And all of us were made to drink of one spirit. And he's speaking of the unity of the body and, and how we all to, to work together as, as limbs in a body work together. We make one whole thing. And he says, this comes about that God creates this unity, God creates this oneness by the work and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit when he causes you to be born again, when he brings you to life, he brings you into unity with all those who share and drink of that same Spirit. But there's also a massively practical side to this unity. And we need to not get lost in the atmosphere. Why? Because it's meant to be a visible and powerful sign of his presence and power in the world. And he says through the unity that Jesus prays over his church, he says, I want the world to know what's going on. Right, two times in verse 21 and in verse 23, he says the purpose is, right, verse 21, they may all be one just as You, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe. The world would come to faith in who Jesus is because of the work he is doing in his people, in us. 
right? 23, he says the same thing another way. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, completely unified, so that the world would know that you sent me, so that, so that the world would know that I am the Son of God and that they would be saved, that they would be attracted to to the kind of thing that God is doing in the midst of his church, that it would be that the way we love each other is so attractive, the way that we are unified with one another, the way that we live out the gospel with one another is so powerful that the world would be attracted to it. The world would know that Jesus is indeed who he said he is. We can see it. Verse 22, he says, that he gave to us the glory that the Father had given to him so that we might be one. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He gives us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ so that we would be saved and made into his people, completely unified. A gloriously united church, perfectly and completely one, he says. And the effectiveness of our mission and the credibility of our gospel, to some extent, extent depends on the unity of the messengers. Paul says in Ephesians 4, it's there under the second point, 1 to 3, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy the calling of which you have been called. Well, what, what is worthy walking, Paul? What, what do you want us to do? Well, with all the humility, the death of your pride, with all gentleness, death of your critical harshness, with all patience, bearing with one another, which means there's reason that you're going to have to bear with me. There are good reasons, and that's why he tells you you're going to have to do that. There are reasons why we bear with each other. There's, there are reasons. And he says, so this is it. This is the, the, the life, the walk worthy of the calling that he has given to us, bearing these characteristics, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. Why? Eager to maintain that unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. Right? This is it. A, I mean, a couple things here. One, that we're maintaining a unity. We're not creating it, right? This is a unity created by God, by his spirit, in calling us out of darkness into light, out of death into life, into one body, causing us to drink of one spirit, that we are in him, either he is in the Father, and the Father is in him, and, and he creates it, and he says that we are to be eager, eager. The life worthy of the calling. To maintain it, right? To keep it, to preserve it, to protect it. I want us to hear Jesus praying for us, his church. Praying for the kind of unity and unified, complete oneness that says to the world, Jesus is the living son of God and he saves people. He saves us. It's interesting to me as Jesus prays this prayer for unity that he really does ground his whole vision in the very nature of God. 
this isn't just a random thing that he prays for us. He, he backs it up and he, he prays it out of the very nature of who God is. His vision flows from the oneness that he experiences with the Father. And we'll put in there the Holy Spirit. The Trinitarian oneness. The three who are one from all eternity and who have known and loved and lived in perfect harmony since, well, since, you know, since back further than any of us, there is no beginning. He is the beginning. He's always been this way. And Jesus says because God is this way, there's this oneness and unity. There's this peace and this harmony that exists in God from all eternity. And he says in this This I pour out into my people and I pray over my people and call forth from my people. That the church on earth would be as it is in heaven. Now here's the thing, right? That's his prayer and that's our goal. And the scripture calls us to it and it and it paints a picture for us and it, you know, and it puts it all out there. And it, and it is the high calling with which we've been called. But my friends, it's something that we have to strive after every day, just like your own personal sanctification. There is a there is a bar that is so high and yet it never comes down and we don't want it to come down. I want to be like Christ. It doesn't change. And yet we strive after it every day. And yet we may fail. And I will stumble and I will hurt you or sin against you or fail you in some way, and we all will. But the goal never changes. And so what do I do? I don't excuse it. I don't pretend it doesn't matter. I repent. And I forget what is behind, and I press on towards what is ahead in the high calling of Christ every day, every day, every day. That's the Christian life. And that's the life of the church. The goal to be the body of Christ. And we strive after. The bar never comes down. We fail. We stumble. We struggle. We hurt each other along the way. And I am really sorry about that. But what do we do? We repent. We repent and we forget what is behind and we press on toward what is ahead. God hates. God hates division. He hates strife. He hates disharmony. Why? Because of his very nature. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And division and strife and brokenness is is darkness. And so God doesn't like brokenness in this way. And there's a proverb. This is under your third point there. There's a proverb that gives a poetic top seven list of what God hates. The poetic top seven list made me think of I don't know if you ever watched you know, that old Letterman show. He had his top ten, run little cards, and he would throw them. Number, number ten, top seven list of things that God hates. Proverbs chapter six. He says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Number seven, haughty eyes, pride, people who look down on other people. Number six, lying tongue. Number five, hands that shed innocent blood, murder heart that devises wicked plans. Number three of the things God hates, feet that makes haste to run toward evil. Number two on the list of things God hates, a false witness who breathes out lies. Number one, drum roll please. One who sows discord among his brothers. 
strife, dissension, conflict, division. You know, it's quite a list of things in that list right there. It has always struck me in, you know, up there with, with the murderer. You know, of the things that God hates is the shedding of innocent blood is one who sows strife among his people. Paul says then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as they're under the last point, he says, I appeal to you, my brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you would agree that there would be no divisions, but that you would be united, that you would have the same mind, that you would share the same judgment. I read something like that and say, Lord Jesus, how do we do that? Right? How, how do we agree and have the same mind? See, here's the thing. It is a given that we're going to disagree. Right? It's not if. It's when. Right? Disagreement, it, 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 you know, same as in a marriage. It's not if. You know, it's when. In a marriage or in a church, it is inevitable. So the issue is not disagreement. I really don't believe that it is. And the church was full of disagreements. All you need to do is read the New Testament. You know, there were lots of disagreements. And the issue is not disagreement. The issue is not the healthy exchange of ideas done appropriately in the right context, in the right spirit, with the right goal, which is constructive. The issue is not disagreement. God's concern is how we handle disagreement. How do we handle our disappointment? How, how do we handle, you know, when we find ourselves in conflict? How do, we, how do we handle all of those negative feelings and things that we encounter, which, which we do and which we will? But what, what the scripture tells us is that there's a right way and there's a wrong way. One of them is eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace. And one of them sows discord and discontent and causes division and breeds things it ought not to breed. I want to I spend just a couple of minutes talking out of Ephesians chapter 4, um, pulling this stuff out of here. And I believe this is where Paul is practically applying what Jesus is saying in John 17 as he prays it over his church. And, and Ephesians 4, it's earlier in Ephesians 4 that Paul says, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. And I believe the rest of chapter 4 and even chapter 5 are all about what does it look like to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. You get down here into Ephesians 4, 29 and 30, and he says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of unity, by whom you were sealed for that day of redemption. So let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, let it be put away from you along with all malice. <clears throat> be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving, forgiving one another. For it's God in Christ forgave you. Now when he says corrupting talk, he's not talking about cussing which is what I've often heard taught out of this passage that Paul says, no corrupting talk, don't cuss. Well, that, th there may be an injunction on that. You have to go back, ask Southworth, who just taught a Sunday school on the whole thing of cussing. That, that, you know, there, that, that's an issue to be discussed, but that's not what Paul's talking about. How do I know it's not what he's talking about? Because he says, but, but only as is good for building up, it fits the occasion, 
It gives grace to those who hear. In other, in other words, corrupting talk is talk that doesn't build up but tears down, right? That is not fit for the occasion. It's not the right place, not the right time to be saying that, right? It doesn't fit the occasion. It, 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 it doesn't give grace to the ones who hear. Right, so that's the object. The corrupting talk then is talk that, that decays or tears down or sows discontent or that kind of thing in the life of the church. He lists a bunch of them. Further down, all bitterness and wrath and anger. Most of us know what, what most of those things are. Bitterness and anger are familiar to most of us. We know, we know we're supposed to fight those things and find by the grace of the Spirit to be free from such things, but he says, clamor, I, I spent some time looking at that, clamor, I mean, it's, it's kind of what it sounds like, making noise, uh, you know, you know, making a clamor or something is, is complaining, you know, making noise about stuff, slander, gossip, scripture speaks to these things, Proverbs 26, 20, it's there in your bulletin, the lack of wood, the fire goes out, where there is no whisperer. There is no whisperer. Sometimes that's translated as gossip. Quarreling ceases. Philippians 2, he says, Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, his, his argument is the same as Jesus is in John 17. Don't grumble and complain and dispute. Why? So that in the midst of this corrupt generation, you would shine as a light in the darkness. That you would be different. That they would see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That they might know that he is from the Father. That he is who he says he is. And we are his people. How can we convincingly preach a great Savior? We can't get along. And then he says this as fits the occasion. And I want to touch on this because I think a lot of times we read over that. A lot of this other stuff, you've heard it all before. As I've said, if I told you about anything that you shouldn't do that you already knew that we shouldn't do. Um, but one of them, one of the things I think that, I mean, two things. One, we, what we need is not to know what is right. It's the power to do it. Right? Is the awareness, self-awareness that I am doing it, that I'm part of the problem, and, and be the power, the grace of the Spirit to be free from it and to do it differently. But I, I think well, the other thing is to see these things, as he says, is fits the occasion. We run right by that. And I think this is where we often go wrong. And what he is saying, I think, is that it has to be in the right place in the right time. Right? Part of what makes something wrong is not what we say, but when and where we say it. Right? When and where we say it. To whom do we express whatever it is we want to express? Put it in any of those categories. Anger, bitterness, clamor, complaining, slander. All of those things. They may all have a very proper place to tell someone or to vent or to have a conversation. But where we say it and to whom we say it will determine whether it is for building up and gives grace to those who hear, meaning it's meant to be constructive, or whether it ends up being something that throws wood on a fire, you know, or stirs up and becomes corrupting rather than, than edifying. 
we do this, you know, my small group or with a group of friends or somewhere in the foyer or somewhere some conversation happens and you know it's on your heart and out it goes. You know, into the wrong place in the wrong time. It's not fitting. Are these the right people to tell? Is saying it in this context constructive? Does it give grace? Is it going to is it going to help and bring healing and health and life? Proverbs 18:21 says this in your bulletin. Death, no, it didn't make your bulletin. This is a freebie. Proverbs 18:21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. We did an exercise in gospel transformation. It was a week-long exercise, and they said for one week, one week you need to go without complaining, criticizing, tearing anyone down, saying anything negative, only, only what is constructive, fitting for the situation, gives grace to those who hear, all right, go. You have one week to pay attention, to to pay attention to yourself, self-awareness. You can't imagine how difficult that exercise is. It's very revealing. Jesus says, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Well, my friends, we need the gospel so desperately. The gospel we preach must be the gospel that we live. It will not be a witness to others until it is transforming to us. The gospel we preach must be the gospel we live. We must experience it ourselves and we must extend it to each other. The gospel humbles us, right? He says in all humility and gentleness. It humbles us because we know we're broken. But Jesus says the one who is forgiven much loves much and, and, and is merciful in return. It humbles us and it empowers us. Empowers us to bear with each other, to genuinely and completely forgive one another. And, and even he says that we would forgive others as God in Christ forgave you. This is the key to it all. Now, and if I leave you with this, if nothing else, he says the only way that you are going to be able then to be forgiving, and I'm going to put under that bearing with each other and all the rest of it, the only way that you're going to be able to genuinely and authentically forgive each other, truly be reconciled, truly be healed, truly go on in friendship and partnership. The only way that we can truly experience that, he says, as God in Christ forgave you. If we don't live there, in the humble place at the foot of the cross, where he bears my sin and he sets me free from the burden of my guilt, do I know and to feel and to experience the one who has forgiven much, loves much. And so we find the grace and the power to forgive each other. I read a passage like this and my heart is filled with longing. Longing. Genuine, heartfelt, gracious work of the Spirit. Longing to be the answer to this prayer. That Jesus would use me in the body of Christ. My hope and my prayer is that this is your prayer. That your prayer would be that Jesus would answer this prayer in the way that you know, love, serve Him in His church. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning confessing that 
out of the abundance of our hearts, our mouths speak. Father, you know I, for one, am very guilty of what comes out of my mouth. Father, have mercy upon us as a people. I pray, Father, that you would stir in us a longing as we read this prayer, that we would be one even as you, Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit are one. That we would be eager to maintain this unity, that you would fill us with a longing and a passion to be a part of the health and wholeness of your body. Work in us the grace and the power to be the people of God. It is in Jesus' name that we pray and ask.